Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network. This is the Unseen Leadership Podcast, where we explore the unseen stories that shaped leaders into who they are today. It really is about a marathon. It never registered to me when I was younger because I was so, I think I was so obsessed with the next thing, the next thing, the new thing, and how I could achieve the next level. And I just didn't have an imagination of what it looked like to be about the marathon of faithfulness till the last breath. Well, welcome to the Unseen Leadership Podcast. I am your host, Chandler Vinoy, here as always with my co-host, Josh Hunter. Yo, Josh, what up? You good, Chandler? You? I'm doing all right, man. A little stir crazy, but we're getting there. Okay. So Chandler and I have a pretty good setup. I don't know. We've probably mentioned it before, but we're on FaceTime right now so we can <laughs> non-verbally communicate to each other. You know, if somebody wants to jump in and ask a question, but he's got a new haircut still. I've got a new haircut still. Um, I've never seen the maps behind you on the wall there. Yeah, man. Oh, Nashville? What is that? Those are the three cities in Tennessee that I've lived in. So Knoxville, okay. Chattanooga, then Nashville. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Yep. Well, I'm really excited today because we have an awesome guest on. Um, his name is Eugene Cho. I've known Eugene, I don't know. I don't know how long I've known you, three or four years, but he is the founder and former senior pastor of Quest Church. He is now the president-elect of Bread for the World. He is also an author of several books, including his latest, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk. Eugene, it's so good to talk to you again, bro. Thank you guys so much. Uh, it's a pleasure. And I'm so bummed that we can't do this in person, but mm. so uh, such are the circumstances of our times. Very true. Now, you're, you're in Seattle, is that correct? I am. I'm in Seattle right now. And as you noted, I'll be heading out to D.C. at some point. That's where Bread for the World uh, is. And I'll be making that full-time move in July of next year. Okay. Yeah. Right now, it's very indefinite when any of us can really travel. And I'm sure for you going from Seattle to D.C., that's a it's a long journey to, uh, to try to figure out when that's going to take place. So hopefully sooner rather than later. How, how does it feel to have president-elect as a title? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, it looks you know, awesome. It makes for a long Twitter bio. And, um, <laughs> it's taken away my characters and I'm wanting to eventually become president. No, it's something that I never envisioned. You know, I'll continue to be able to travel a bit to encourage pastors and leaders. I get to still lead one day's wages, uh, but it's a, it's a humbling opportunity to serve Christ in that way. Uh, but particularly in DC, which is a place that intimidates me for lots of reasons, but, um, God is gracious. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, before, as we were prepping for this interview, I was looking at your, your website and I saw, you know, on your bio, it has a bunch of things listed out, but one of those was that your MBA status is that you're currently a free agent ready to sign with any and NBA free team. agent. So my question well, to you is if you could choose any NBA team to play for and you could get a contract, who would it be? You know, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked. I am <laughs> hoping that GMs are listening to this podcast. Maybe there are some aspiring GMs. I grew up in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, in the days of Mullins, Richmond, and Hardaway. Oh, man. So wow. for me, it's the Golden State Warriors. I have been told that they don't have good guards, either point guards or shooting <laughs> guards. I think they've got these two guys. Uh, is it 
Curry or Thompson. Yeah, I've never heard like of them. That. Something like something that. Like that. So I, that's the team that I want to get on. Well, it'd be a good, good time to do so. <laughs> and Eugene, uh, one of the things that you mentioned it, and we didn't even uh, give it a shout out in the bio, bio, and I'm so sorry, but it's where I got to know you a little bit, um, was through One Day's Wages. And you partner with, do you still partner with Jeremy Lin with that? Is it kind of the two you guys that head that up, or is it just you? How, how does that work? And tell us a little bit yeah, about that organization. One of, our, one of our donors and supporters, obviously, he's an incredible, just a great guy, loves Jesus, uh, humble, and yeah, he is one of our partners. And uh, OneDaysWages.org, we just try to inspire people around the world to consider giving at least one day's of their wages. Mm. And we take 100% of donations and we invest it in carefully vetted projects around the world. Just right now, you know, as we're speaking, uh, we're in the process of trying to raise and invest about a half million dollars in... Okay small NGOs uh, that are doing work around COVID-related uh, projects around the world. Mm. Well, thanks for t- telling us about that. If you guys want to check it out, onedayswages.com. Amazing organization. Yeah. Well, speaking of Jeremy Lin, I know we were talking about the NBA. I'm a New York Knicks fan. So in recent Man. years, our most favorite memory has been Lin Sanity. So, yeah. <laughs> you no, know, when, you, when you said that, that you're a New York Knicks fan, my heart just broke. It, it, just, it just went out for you. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll lift you in my thoughts and prayers. Please, please do. Please do. Well, Eugene, we're, we're very excited to have you on. And just even knowing your backstory, I'm excited to, to learn even more about it. So let's, let's hop in here. Can you walk us through a quick overview of the different leadership roles you've been in over the years that have led you to where you are today? Yeah, thank you. You know, uh, first of all, again, it's really an honor and a privilege for me to be able to be on this call. And I'm uh, looking forward to just our conversation. And I hope that both the ups and downs and everything in between uh, is, a, is a source of encouragement to someone that's listening. Um, I became a follower of Jesus at the age of 18. Um, Prior to that, I think I dabbled in going to church because my parents forced me to go to church. Both my parents were born in what is now called North Korea. My great-grandfather was one of the first people in his small little village um, to say yes to Jesus many, many years ago. And thus began like this, I think, movement of the Holy Spirit in our family. But at least for me, I was 18 when I made that decision. And I think I started growing in leadership because I started serving. There weren't no roles. There were no necessarily uh, mammoth responsibilities. It was just saying yes to invitations to get involved. And it was teaching Bible study. I probably wasn't necessarily equipped or adept, uh, prepared as a younger Christian, but they needed someone to help teach Bible study to younger students in the youth group. And so I did. And that really helped me to kind of grow. And after that, I went to seminary. Uh, I went to seminary at Princeton Seminary in New Jersey. And then I began to serve as a youth pastor in a couple of different contexts in ethnic Korean churches mm-hmm. that happened in, in, in uh, Flushing, New York. And eventually I went back to Korea for two years uh, to lead a ministry there at a large church. And I just, again, grew a lot, was mentored by some really good people. And I've served in different churches, but I would say some of the more formative places where I've had leadership positions was being a pastor, first of a Korean American church in Seattle, planted Quest Church as a multi-ethnic, multi-generational urban church with my wife and I, who planted that church in the year 2000 and led in that role for 18 years before we recently stepped down. Wow, 
And then obviously, uh, we started a couple of nonprofit entrepreneurial things that have really been formative. Uh, we helped start a, a nonprofit a coffee shop music venue here in Seattle. It was one of three all-ages music venue before we closed that down when we had to sell the property and move locations. And then one day's wages, and then now bread for the world. You know, hearing your story, Eugene, it definitely sounds like there's definitely some aspect of an entrepreneurial heart in, in your story. So what did it look like for you? How did, I mean, I know there's a few different nonprofits that you mentioned. You also started Quest Church, and now you're jumping into a new role after 18 years at Quest Church. So how did you kind of discover that you, you enjoyed being a starter of, of things? And then how did you listen to God's calling and know what that was supposed to be? Yeah, you know, the thing is, I had no idea what entrepreneur or entrepreneurialism even was. You know, and I think in hindsight, you realize, wow, I had these leanings or, or giftings. But as I, uh, at that moment, I didn't know. And I think it was just, I liked starting things. I liked yeah. doing things. And um, what made it interesting is that it resonated with other people. You know, I think one of the ways that you become or you realize you're a leader isn't just that you're leading, but then you have people that are following you as well. Mm. And so as we began to start new things, these ideas, and so my, uh, my mind is constantly thinking of ideas. It's percolating new thoughts. I think that's one way that you realize that you're an entrepreneur. And then you have the guts to take ideas into formation and fruition. And so um, I think ever since I became a Christian, uh, I realized that I enjoyed starting things. And, and just the first memory that I have was in college. We didn't have a college fellowship in the dormitories that uh, I lived in. No one really had cars for us to drive somewhere. And so somebody said, why don't you start one? I thought that was a crazy idea. But next week <laughs> I started one, made some posters, uh, handmade posters actually. <laughs> and I think about seven or eight people came to our first Singspiration in our, in our little um, communal lodge, if you will. And that grew to about 100 people eventually. And so, again, just lots of these, these stories as I look back. And I think it's helped me to realize that that's one of the, the giftings that I have. I love that. So looking back on your story, um, when and you mentioned it really briefly, but when did you realize, man, Eugene, I, I am a leader. Like, when did you realize that you became a leader? It probably took some time. There wasn't a moment where mm -hmm. things snapped and I said, wow, I am a leader. So I struggled with lots of things growing up, like probably every single one of us in some capacity or another. But I, I would say there were some significant things that I wrestled with. And so the idea that I was a leader, that somebody would look up to or follow Mm -hmm. It didn't register into my mind until probably when I was in the latter stages of high school, early college. But as an immigrant, I immigrated here when I was six years old, didn't know a single lick of English and really labored in elementary school because I just didn't know if I fit yeah. or belonged. I was yeah. constantly asked the question, who are you? Where are you from? And if people didn't like me, they said, go back home. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think kids can be incredibly gracious, but they could also be brutal in some of their language. I flunked first grade, uh, which was a source of big 
struggle and internal strife, if you will. And by the time I got to middle school, I was voted the shyest kid in middle school and eventually developed a stuttering problem. And I was so afraid of people, afraid of public speaking, afraid of raising my hands. So when I look back now, I'm actually getting a little emotional because I do see God's graciousness, Mm -hmm. not just in the ability to lead, but just, I think, in the ability to work through some of these struggles. So I think it was through in high school when I began that one of the ways that I could lead people isn't by speaking, by articulation, by what I said, by what I did. And I, mm. I was an athlete. I love sports. Sports was my small R religion growing up in uh, high school. And it was through running, it was through basketball, it was through other things. And so I realized that by actually modeling certain things, people began to grow in respect and admiration for me. And so even if I didn't have many words to say, people looked to me for direction. So that was probably the first yeah. time I realized that there's influence uh, in leadership, but also there's different ways. You know, And I think when you look at athletes, there are loud leaders and there are quieter leaders who lead by example. Mm. Uh, so that was my first, I think, understanding of, um, that there is a certain uh, weight uh, in leadership. And it was in college that I began to realize that not just in what and how I lived, but also how I thought and how I articulated myself also had uh, a powerful example. So those two things together, it really began to make sense. Uh, and that's really when I began as a, as a follower of Jesus Uh, say to God, Lord, how do I steward these responsibilities uh, for your glory and honor? Mm. You you got into the sum, but let's jump into maybe another one or maybe another couple moments. But can you tell us about a pivotal moment that you look back on that changed your leadership and life? So this can be um, pre-leadership or post-leadership when you're kind of realizing that you were a leader. Is there a moment that sticks out to you that was like, man, this is life-changing for me? There was a moment Uh, I wasn't a a Christian at that time, but when I look back, even if I hadn't acknowledged Christ as a high schooler yet, I look back now and I know that Christ was pursuing me from the Mm. beginning of my life, the moment, my first breath, even before, I believe, theologically, even before I came to existence, I I, I truly believe that Jesus was pursuing me. I look Mm. back and one of the most formative life-changing moments in my life. And it's actually probably one of those moments that I'm really proud of, you know, uh, was when I was a junior in high school. I came to grips with the fact that I was terrified with people. I was terrified with public speaking. And I didn't want to live like that. I didn't want to live with constant tension. Uh, One of the reasons why I think I developed a stuttering problem was I was constantly preparing what I was going to say in my mind before it came out of my lips. And I would have this dialogue, these prepared thoughts constantly. And by the time it actually came out, I was mumbling my way through. Hmm. And so in in high school, junior year, I thought, okay, what's the most terrifying thing I could do? And that's what I need to do in order to say to these fears, you will not paralyze me for the rest of my life. And the most terrifying thing that I could think of, I had to name it, and then I wanted to do something about it, was to be in a theater play, was to Mm. audition for a play, and then just to go for it. 
It was the most terrifying thing that I can do. And so I auditioned for our high school production in our dramatic theater department. Uh, they were doing a production of Midsummer Night's Dream. And I went for it. I auditioned. And lo and behold, I was cast for the very significant, important <laughs> role of The Wall. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think had maybe two lines. Uh, and I still look back and I get goosebumps again just because I hope this doesn't sound arrogant, but it's probably one of the most proudest things that I did because I named my fear. I named it and I said, I'm just not going to let you dominate my life. And mm. um, obviously there weren't many lines. It wasn't a big role, but in my life, it was one of those things that really dramatically shifted. I think the course of, I think my life, leadership, what that looked like, uh, and it, I always look back and think back at that moment. To this day, I always shake at every single opportunity when I'm speaking in places. Even right now for this podcast, I'm, I'm nervous because I still realize. And in some ways, I'm, I'm actually gr grateful that it's not something I ever take for granted. Certainly yeah. when I'm preaching and stewarding God's word, I still get stomach aches the night before the morning of. Uh, but it's also a reminder to me that it's not ultimately by my strength and I need to keep depending on the Holy Spirit. I, I love that. And I just want to take a moment and affirm you, man. I, I've heard you preach several times and you're great. Um, the Lord has gifted you. And then also just for your vulnerability, I, I love I, I love the fact that you still get nervous before these conversations uh, because like this is going to air to a, a lot of people but it shows a lot of humility that you get nervous. Um, hey, I'm not just going to come in here blindly and like, I'll be fine. Hey, I'll just wing it. It'll be good. Um, mm -hmm. So man, thank you for doing that. And thank you for being vulnerable on air. Um, I, I love your story and it is inspiring. Well, you know, I, I hope for those who are listening, I hope that we would never become so confident in our own, mm. in, our, in our own self, you know, in our own self, I, this concerns me about myself, about others, whether whatever age that they might be in. Uh, we are stewarding such responsibility. Leadership is not for the faint of heart. And we can cause, yes, great, I think, um, impact, positive growth by God's grace. But we can also cause significant damage through toxic, bad, abusive leadership. And so... Uh, may we all uh, tremble at the privilege that we have to lead. Mm, that's good. You know, as you were you were sharing that, I just think that it truly is God using our weakness to show off his power. And 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, my grace is sufficient for you, mm. for my power is perfected in weakness. And then Paul says, therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weakness so that Christ's mm. power may reside in me. So just... Once again, Eugene, thank you for sharing that because I think it does echo the words of Second Corinthians and Paul. So just a great reminder for all of us to lean in to our weaknesses and not be scared of them and really, really do appreciate that. Yep. Well, I know along the way, there were probably a few mistakes that, that you learned from. <laughs> so what was your biggest mistake as a leader getting started? Well, first of all, I'm not sure why you're laughing. I've never made a mistake. It's never been documented. Unless you have proof, it, it hasn't happened. That's good. Um, oh. Yeah, you know, gosh, man, that would be, 
that would be a different podcast, one that goes <laughs> for a few days. Um, you know, rather than sharing a specific one, I feel like a consistent mistake that I feel like has popped up early on, it was looking for shortcuts. Like I knew as a leader, I knew where I wanted to get to, where I felt like we had to get to in terms of systems, in terms of strategy, you know, whether we're using Excel sheet or some sort of ideation. Like for me, um, I've been told that one of my gifts is I'm a good strategist and I'm a good ideator. And so I have an idea, hey, this is where we need to get to. But I think the mistake that I made early, especially as a pastor, was I knew where we felt like we had to go in our desire to like honor Christ with this vision as a pastor, a church planter, a nonprofit creator. But the mistake was I took shortcuts. Mm. Um, once I identified where we had to go, it was making and taking shortcuts. When I knew it, things didn't feel quite right, whether it was hiring folks, whether it's like making decisions about moving whatever it might have been, but there were a few times where just in my gut, as we were praying, I just didn't have peace. I didn't have the sense that this is what we should be doing. But the reason why I made that decision is, whoa, that's going to help us get to the next level so much more quicker. And then I justified it by saying those magical words in ministry, but it's for Jesus. <laughs> and so I look back now and it, I mean, it's kind of, scary how oftentimes we can justify things with that phrase, but it's for Jesus, even though in our gut, the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, this, this isn't right. This isn't the, the system, the process, the path, the pace that I want you to be on. And so that's been one of the biggest mistakes that I made. And then I'll just share another one. And I can share, gosh, examples after examples, but I thought I'm turning 50 years old in a couple months, and which is probably the reason why I'm on this podcast. Uh, you guys <laughs> articulated a nice way of saying, hey, you're old. Can you share <laughs> some of your lessons to younger folks? But, you know, I thought by the time I turned 50 years old, I would no longer struggle with this. So when you're talking about a past mistake, this is an example of a past big mistake that I still struggle with even today which is the reason why it humbles you, but it's the fear of people. Mm. Uh, it's the fear of public favor or wanting and obsessed with public favor. And I'm happy to say I'm not obsessed, but it's still something that I worry about, that I want to be liked. Um, it made sense to me as a younger leader why I was obsessed with that, that I wanted to be liked. I wanted people to like my sermons. I wanted to have people uh, like my ideas. I just didn't expect it to continue to linger in some form or another, even to this day. And so there's constant mistakes that I've made as a result of it and things I've had to put into place to say, hey, when we say and when you preach that you live for an audience of one, what does yeah. that look like? Yeah, man, that's really good. Before we get to the next question, let's take a moment and hear from our sponsor. On this podcast, we hope to equip our listeners with the best resources to help churches thrive. So if you're looking at launching a thriving church in a rented venue, I encourage you to check out the team at Portable Church. Portable Church Industries equips churches meeting in alternative venues with total solutions so you can launch strong, be reproducible, and thrive in your communities. For over 25 years, 
They have partnered with church planners and multi-site leaders, mastering creative, intelligent, effective, portable church solutions. So you and your team stay focused on the things that matter, building disciples. See what this looks like by visiting portablechurch.com slash lifeway. Once again, that's portablechurch.com slash lifeway. Now, back to the podcast. Eugene, you've been leading a lot of different people and many different organizations um, over the past uh, many years, as you so eloquently put it. But what book do you wish someone gave you when you were just starting to lead? Oh, man. You know, I'm going to first share a narcissistic answer. (laughs) Yes. Um, I'm just going to say it. I know I'll be criticized, but you know what? I'm not going to be afraid of not pleasing everyone. Let's go. That's good. Um, So the narcissistic, egotistical answer is, and I wish I knew the lessons of the stuff that I write about in my first book called Overrated. Are we more in love with the idea of changing the world than actually changing the world? Mm. Um, Wow. That book was a book of confessions of things that I've learned, mistakes that I've made over the years. And so it's one of those, I'm sure for all of us, if we could, and if we were honest, we probably would want to know the stuff that we've learned in the last two, three decades of our life before we began that journey. And the irony and the whole paradox of it all, the inception of it all, is that there's no way we would have learned that had we not gone through it. So that would be my first narcissistic answer. I think another book that I wish I had um, access to uh, Pete Scazzaro has uh, a great book called The Emotionally Healthy Leader. Mm-hmm. And I think leadership is not about perfection. It's about maturity. And I think one of the best ways that I can define maturity is awareness. It's who we are, who we serve, and what we're about. It's about our strengths, our weaknesses. And I think the journey of leadership is constantly learning about who you are and how we exercise that knowledge into fruition for God's glory and honor. But his book is probably one of those books that keeps helping me and I recommend to others as well. We, we love that book on this podcast. It's been recommended many times. And I, I know both Josh and I have read it and it made a very big impact on our lives. So Definitely would recommend that as well. I want to go back, though, to when you're talking about your book, Overrated. And, and I really do think with young leaders, we, we see um, the years ahead of our lives and see, you know, praying for God to do great things through us. And I, I just really think that that is a very relevant topic for us is that are we more in love with the idea of changing the world than actually changing the world? And what advice would you give to a young leader who may be muddying the waters there of saying, I want to change the world rather than actually, you know, having God yeah. use you to change the world. It can be like a quick murky question. water there. So could you just kind of give us some advice? I know you said it was past experiences that you wrote about. So I'd love to hear about that. You know, first I'd begin with affirmation. I want to affirm people. I mean, that's a great thought to have. Like, I want to do, I want to do stuff for God's glory. I want to change the world. But I think if we're not careful, even our posture, our, our, our posture in itself, we want to make sure that we're recalibrating our heart so that it's not about me, myself, and I, and what I want to do for God's glory. Mm. Before we were born, God has been at work. I had this foolish thought, this 
foolish, insane thought that when I was planting Quest Church in Seattle, that somehow by me planting Quest Church, I would then usher in God's glory and God's kingdom here in Seattle. And the truth is, long before Quest ever became an idea or a vision that got planted in my heart, God's been at work long before we ever, ever arrived on the scene. And so I think the posture that we should be asking is not so much, God, um, uh, this is my plan, my vision, my hopes, my Excel sheet, now be a part of my plan. But really to have and to be in tune with the Holy Spirit and say, God, I know that you're already at work here. You're at work here in Seattle. You're at work in Nashville. You're at work all around the world. You're at work. And how can I be a part of what you're already doing? Ultimately, while God gives us visions, it's about God's greater missio day. The mission of God is mm. what we're a part of. Is It's his story. And we get to be a part of his story for his glory and honor. But I think we have to acknowledge that in our cultural context, maybe because of our social media, I mean, humans have always been about the ego, about me and myself. But I think it's particularly challenging in our world today where there's so much about the self-broadcasting culture, and I think perpetuated by social media. Yeah, And so uh, that's part of our temptation. We need to understand what are some of the seductive traps that might be present in our lives and in our cultural context that might sway us and that might stumble us in some way or the other. The other thing that I would say about changing the world is that, you know, it's not just a one-time thing. And for me, it's about a lifelong, lifelong uh, trajectory, a lifelong faithful obedience towards the same direction. You know, another book that I'll just quickly refer to that I think is just really, really good Eugene Peterson's book has always been helpful for me. And in one of his books, uh, it's entitled A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And I mm -hmm. think that's part of leadership. And when we're talking about changing the world, it's not that one single solitary viral moment. But how do we live a trajectory of faithful obedience? Uh, that's one of the things that I would share with folks. Uh, there's, there's others. You know, one more thing that I'll just add to this conversation is that we just need to be deep. Uh, we need to have a well of information, experience, a well of intimate time with God. And if I can be honest and frank, I think it's one of the concerns that I had with me, myself, when I was younger, and it's one of the concerns that I have with leaders today. Uh, I have a lot of conversations with younger leaders through different uh, means, whether they reach out to me or at conferences or places that I speak at. And probably the most common question that I get is, how do I do what you're doing? How do I get to a place that you're at? Um, some people will ask more bluntly, how do I build my platform so that it's like your platform? Mm. And I know what they're asking. And I know that they're not trying to sound, it sounds dangerous to me. And it sounds dangerous to me, not because that question is a bad or a toxic question. And maybe because of the limitations of our combo, they're not asking other questions. But it would really concern me if that's the brunt or the only question that we're asking leaders. Because I think I rarely get questions about how do I build my depth, my character, my integrity? How do I build those things? Because mm. that's what's going to help us for the marathon as opposed to simply building a platform to be able to grow our influence.
Man, that's good. Personal growth is always greater than platform growth, and it's gonna it's gonna pay dividends. And you actually were you went right to a question I was gonna ask. I was gonna ask about uh, leaders and struggling to like be, they really want to be influencers. But I'll, and I'll phrase it a little bit differently, and maybe we can dive into this just a little bit more because I do think it's really prevalent right now. So for me, this is something I've struggled with. How do I how do I get influence? How do I how do I build my social media? How do I build my platform? How would you say, like, and I don't ask that question, like I wouldn't ask that question to you and I wouldn't walk up to a random leader and ask that, but in my heart, I really struggle with it sometimes because I, I've got to get, I've got to grow that in order to get more influence because I have good things to share. How, how do I combat that just really practically in my heart and try to and fight against that and grow in character rather than um, platform? Yeah. And those questions I think are fair, legitimate questions, as you said. Um, I think the most important thing that we can do is we have to name stuff. We can't just think about it in our own hearts and minds where it has the possibility of growing or festering in a way that's not healthy. It could just be our obsession where we're constantly looking at our social media channels to know how many more followers that I get. So we live in a time where as an example, social media, in my opinion, it is a legitimate language of our cultural time. So I get that. And I also understand that these are some of the things that people look at to see from a big picture perspective, not knowing us personally, yeah. if we have some sort of leverage or platform or influence. But we have to name the things that we struggle with. You don't name it, then you're basically allowing it to fester in a place mm. that's unseen and there's no light piercing into that. We have to be able to not just name it. We want to be able to name it with a group of close friends that you trust to say, how are you doing? How am I doing? How are we doing around the areas of pride, of ego, of mm. lust, of seduction, of whatever it might be? That lessens, I think, the sting and the power of that sin or temptation in our lives. I find it really interesting that oftentimes many things are neutral. They can be either used for good or they could either be used for bad as well. So we have um, yeah. the ability to kind of discern how we want it to be used or how we want those things to use us. But having said that, I think eventually we're all thinking about how do we build that P word, our, our platform that leads mm. to influence or our influence to help build our platform. And again, I, I get that. I think for me, when I was you know, 20 years old, 22 years old, when I began seminary, honestly, those words never, it didn't exist for me. We didn't have the internet. Uh, when my wife and I started dating, this thing called electronic mail had just started. <laughs> and we called it electronic mail. No one knew to call it email. And so I understand that our context is different and I probably would have wrestled with it in a different way. But having said that, I think what I've learned over the years, and this is what I mean by the previous answer that I gave some time ago about shortcuts. This could be an example of yeah. a shortcut where you understand, ah, I've got to get to point B and then to point C. But if you're not working on character, on integrity, because eventually when you build your audience, and I'm using air quotes right now, invisibly. <laughs> I don't know why you're not here. But if you're trying to build your audience, as people look at you and there's no depth, there's no substance, there's no character, there's no integrity, 
um, it's going to make for some very difficult, painful moments in our lives. Yeah. So do we build the audience and influence? And uh, Yes, I, mean, I think that's okay. I think it's good. But don't have that conversation alone where you're ruled and dominated by these things. Have it with friends. Have it with sisters and brothers in Christ so that those things don't rule us. But the most important thing for the marathon is that when people see you, they're going to kind of look beyond the surface and see and discern. Is there depth and substance to this person? And that's ultimately what defines leadership. Hmm. Great answer. Yeah, thank you so much. Truthfully, I I do think that was one of the most practical, godly answers I've heard to that question. So really appreciate that. And we were just interviewing Derwin Gray earlier this week, and it it will post as well uh, right around this episode. And he had the same, somewhat same suggestion as we were asking about what type of books to read. And he was, his response was, you know, as Christians, we should be reading deeper books instead Mm -hmm. of, you know, the short, quick books that tell us that we're awesome or those, those type of things, but instead read deep theological books and wrestle with God. And I think my favorite part to your answer was to do it with a group of people and, you know, to name that to others, because if, you know, let's just go back to, to your example, Eugene, where you're wanting to start, you know, you have this desire to start a nonprofit ministry. You have a desire to start a church. When you share that with others, it becomes a reality, but also they can keep you accountable in that. Why, why do you want to do that? You know, asking the hard questions of what is the motive here? So mm. really do appreciate that answer. Mm. It's good. Well, let's move to the quick hitter questions here. And these are going to be short one minute answers. And we'll get started with this one. What is your ideal daily routine? So what time do you wake up, get into the office, all that good stuff? You know, I'm not sure what an ideal daily routine is, but especially during this COVID time. I mean, it's an interesting question during this COVID time. Um, But I think I have, there's a, there's a a rhythm of flourishing for me. Uh, And a rhythm of flourishing is that I try to get up around 7, 7.30 a.m. And I just take a moment to pause and breathe. And I'm not trying to sound overly spiritual. And it's not even before I, I open up God's scriptures. I just take a moment to breathe and I look around God's creation. It is just quiet. It's so quiet. And I just love that moment to pause before the chaos of that day. And sometimes that day has nothing uh, chaotic going on. And some days are just unexpected chaos. But I just appreciate the moments on the bookends of my day in the beginning and the evening. And I usually go to bed around 11 or midnight. It used to be a night owl. But those two, I think, bookends of the silence where it's just me and God, prayer and solitude and reflection, those are incredibly important to me. There's a few other rhythms uh, that are very helpful for me. I think it's moments to walk. I love going on walks. I love going on walks where I'm just either alone or with my wife. These are walks where I pray and I listen. Solitude and silence is a real big spiritual rhythm for my life. And then, uh, honestly, recently, I've been trying to get back into exercising. I mentioned earlier that um, sports used to be a big deal. And I started getting really unhealthy about a few years ago. Um, Got uh, really heavy uh, about three years ago. Developed another ulcer. uh, Had a hard time sleeping. Mm. Um, Man, you know, this is probably a much longer answer than you guys expected. That's okay. but I think it's actually really important for people to understand that when we're talking about like 
ideal flourishing for our lives. It's not, it's not just your quiet time. It's not just your prayer time. Those obviously matter. Our emotional health, our relational health, our intellectual vitality, and then yes, our physical flourishing for really, sure. really does matter. And so I, exercise has grown to be a very important part of my life again, and I'm really grateful for that. 100% agree with that. And I, actually the past two weeks I've started, I used to, I wanted to get up and run in the mornings, but I read somewhere, um, we're going to get to this in a second, but um, I'm an Enneagram type eight. And I read somewhere, it's really good for an eight to wake up and just walk in the morning and mm. take it easy, slow down because everything is so intense in my life and my mind, you know, I've got to, I've got to do it all the way or it's, or it's nothing. And so just walking and slowing down, it's been really, really beneficial for me the past couple of weeks. So that's cool that you do that as well. Very so cool. that being said, I'm an Enneagram 8. What is your favorite personality test? Doesn't have to be the Enneagram. Um, and then what are the results from that test? You know, gosh, so this question <laughs> really bothers me. <laughs> there, you're not the only one. A lot of people get bothered by this question. Oh, okay, which, which I'm sure... With that answer, there are some who are listening that have now said, oh, he's now this, you know, by that, <laughs> by that answer. And, and that's the whole thing. Just so I know that this, I'm married. Uh, my wife, her name is Minhee. She is a marriage and family therapist. Okay. Has devoted the last 15, 20 years of her life uh, to all things psychology, counseling, therapy. And so maybe one of the reasons why I don't like these more deeper kind of personality tests is that I am basically uh, analyzed every single day by my yeah. Yeah. One of it. yeah. And then obviously, as you know, let's just name it. I mean, right now, uh, and it's still ongoing, there is such a craze around the Enneagram. Uh, it, I, I can't go a week without someone talking about their Enneagram and asking me what I am. And for what it's worth, I'm, I'm a three with a four wing. Uh, is what I am on the Enneagram. But I, I, I really don't like personality tests. I've taken all of them or the majority of them for different positions or leadership things that I was invited to be a part of. I see value in them. I think part of the reason why I don't like personality tests is I don't want to box myself in. It's probably, yeah. again, a personality trait. And I also just think that we're always forming, we're always growing in some way or the other. And I don't want myself or others to think that once you're labeled something, it means that you've arrived, you've landed, and there's no room for growth or change. And I actually think that one of the most important lessons about leadership is that we're constantly growing and changing. The essence yeah. of the word disciple yeah. is that we're a learner, we're a lifelong learner. And I know no personality test ever says that this is who you are for the rest of your life. But I just think that that's one of the thoughts that we have in our minds once we're labeled a letter, a number, or a wing, or whatever it might be. Yeah, pers per they can be, personality tests can be nebulous uh, sometimes because that's not who I'm always going to be. And I, I totally get that. We've, I've thought about maybe taking this question off. But just the reactions that it gets sometimes are just totally worth it. And so I'll <laughs> keep it on. Yes. I'm sure you keep it on for the psychoanalyst listeners that you have. They're all, they can write a book on, mm, on the top. This is what I think Eugene show is driven right. by. And yada, yada. Right. <laughs> well, Eugene, what's an unusual habit that helps you in your leadership? So I, I mean, this is not unusual. It shouldn't be unusual. 
And the fact that I think I'm answering it in this way should make many of us pause and reflect on my answer. And here, here's my answer. It's the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I say it's an unusual habit is I don't know of many leaders who really hold to the sanctity of the Sabbath. I'm not suggesting that I'm, I'm not promoting legalism. I'm not promoting an obsession with the Sabbath. But I honestly don't know many folks that really take to heart the beauty, the flourishing, the rhythm of the Sabbath in their life, where they just pause where they're not doing chores, they're not doing social media, they're just trying as best as they can to just enjoy that moment to realize I'm not God and I'm going to relish in who God is. Yeah. And because of my love for the Sabbath and I don't have it all together at times, I make mistakes and all that kind of stuff, is that I also love a sabbatical. So every single year, I take two weeks to be completely, um, pretty much silent. I don't talk. For one week, I don't talk. It's a, it's a, a sabbatical of just silence. Um, and I usually go hiking or camping by myself for one week. And so my wife and I and my kids, they know that I'm an introvert. They know that I'm a type three, all of these personality tests. And so <laughs> the gift that they give me is to let me go away. It's yeah. been ranging from one to four weeks where I've been completely alone in a campground, in a forest. And uh, it's haunting, but it's also incredibly powerful for me to just kind of recalibrate my soul. Um, I very much look forward to this every single year. And it's a, I think, an unusual, but a very important rhythm in my life that helps me, not just in my leadership, but really in my spirituality, right? We need to be healthy spiritual beings to be healthy leaders. It's mm, a great reminder. What has been the best book that you've read in the past six months? Best book that I've read, you know, I kind of mentioned it earlier. I, there's, there's two books that I regularly read. So it's not a new book, but there's two, there's several books that I regularly come to uh, in bites and pieces. Um, there are Eugene Peterson's books. Uh, Eugene <laughs> Peterson has a few books that have come out over the years that I just think are really significant, contemplative, reflective books. Uh, his book, uh, Christ Played in, Plays in 10,000 Places. Uh, Eat This Book is one of the books. The Contemplative Pastor is one of the books that uh, I look to on a regular basis. And then Martin Luther King Jr., the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, there is an anthology of his sermons. Uh, it has so many. And so every single week, I try to read one of his sermons. Um, so those two resources have been really helpful for me, uh, especially in the past six months. I think in terms of a new book, um, I have friends who send me books. And so I'm checking out some new books that some friends have been sending out to me. Uh, Rich Viotis has a book coming out and he sent me a manuscript and I've been checking that out. because I really appreciate Again, his bent on leadership, on the uh, intersection between, again, robust theology, on empathy, on reflection, on justice. And so I've been reading his book. Mm, that's great. Last question, Eugene. What one sentence advice would you give someone going into a leadership position for the very first time? One sentence advice. One sentence. One sentence. <laughs> here it is. One sentence. Here it is. Uh, not here it is, but he- here it is. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> have a vision and imagination for the marathon of leadership for the glory of Jesus. Mm. That's what I would say. Mm. That's so good. It, and if I can just briefly explain it, it really yeah. is. It really is about a marathon. It never registered to me when I was younger because I was so, I think I was so obsessed with the next thing, the next thing, the new yeah. thing, and how I could achieve the next level. Again, classic type three Enneagram. Here <laughs> I am now obsessed with Enneagram. Um, and I just didn't have an imagination of what it looked like to be about the marathon of faithfulness till the last breath. Uh, this is, again, probably much longer than you want it, but the two questions that my wife and I have been thinking about as we both enter into our 50s, the two questions we have been holding each other accountable, just wrestling with these questions is this. We don't know when our last physical breath will be here on this earth, but our our vow to each other is to be asking these two questions to and of one another. Uh, the two questions are, will we still be following Jesus on the last breath of our life? And the second one is, if so, and may it be so, will there be joy in our hearts in serving Jesus? Mm. And so those two questions have really been formative and challenging and even haunting for both of us as we enter into this new decade of our lives. Mm. There is a, there's a quote, and I'm, I'm going to botch it, so it might be mixture of what I'm trying to remember and what it actually is, but you know, discipleship and leadership success cannot be found by getting on an elevator and just going to the top floor really quickly. You got to take the stairs. It's mm -hmm. a journey. You got to enjoy the process. You got through the ups and the downs. And I hear that resonate a lot through your messaging. So thanks for all you do, Eugene. You're a, you're a great leader and we've really enjoyed having you on the podcast. I appreciate that so much and blessings to you guys. Uh, to all those who are listening, uh, please be safe, be healthy. Um, I've heard this quote now in a few places, but yeah, as we continue to wash our hands. May we always remember to wash feet as we serve and as we lead. God bless you. Mm -hmm. So good. Well, Eugene, once again, thanks for joining us and sharing about your leadership journey. And for you listening, thanks for joining us today. We hope it's been helpful to you and your leadership. If it has, head on over to Instagram, give us a follow, say hey, give us a shout out. We'd love to connect there. See you next week. Peace.